Hey, it's Mercedes, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. This week, we have a lot to talk about. Breaking news came late last week that U.S. President Donald Trump contracted COVID-19. Ottawa Public Health sounded the alarm with the rise of COVID-19 cases in the city and the province. All that and more shoved into just one show. So let's get to it. Joining me now to give us the latest out of Washington is Global National Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosco. Jackson, what can you tell us about President Trump's condition this morning? Good morning, Mercedes. There's still a lot of concern that he's not out of the woods yet. And I think that's the big sort of takeaway, despite all the sort of conflicting information around his current condition. The briefing we had from doctors on uh, Saturday suggested that he is no longer on supplemental oxygen. We learned through subsequent reporting that he was given supplemental oxygen while at the White House. They say his fever has disappeared. Again, we learned through reporting that he did have a fever at the White House, enough of one that it raised concern among staff, and that's part of what brought him to Walter Reed in the first place. And really now, uh, as it is for anybody who uh, uh, contracts this virus, it's kind of a wait-and-see period where the next uh, you know, days and perhaps weeks are really critical because we know that especially for older patients, perhaps those with underlying conditions, that things can quite suddenly take a turn for the worse sometimes. How much transparency has there been on the president's condition? Because I know this has been the subject of some discussion about whether or not people really had a sense of what his condition was and just how much information the White House should be releasing about the health of the president. I think it's safe to say that uh, with the exception of the president and those in his immediate orbit, nobody actually has a clear sense of what his condition actually is. And flashback to Friday for one example. Uh, when uh, word had leaked out overnight and after the president had announced his own positive test for COVID-19, on Friday, sort of mid-morning, the White House chief of staff emerged to say that the president had mild symptoms and was energetic and in good spirits. And then just a few hours later, he was boarding Marine One to be taken to Walter Reed. Well, last night, the White House chief of staff in an interview with Fox News came out and said that on Friday, the president's blood oxygen levels had suddenly dropped to a worrying level and that he had a fever that also raised a lot of concern. And that's as public as they've been. So they're, they're, they're publicly admitting now that uh, the picture they were giving us of the president's health on Friday simply was not the full unvarnished truth. And you still have to wonder if what we're being told now in the, in, in the sort of afterlight, if that's the full truth either. Well, and obviously seeing the president helicoptered out in Marine One suddenly to the hospital, he didn't stop to talk to the press. He, he went right by. He's released two videos yet since. Uh, some are thinking maybe in the hopes of trying to calm the public and show he's still able to speak, he's still functional. There's been no transfer of power. Uh, Jackson, do we have any sense of the timeline on this, of when the president may have contracted it? Because a lot of people who've been around him, including people like former aide Kellyanne Conway, are testing positive. Yeah, so the, po the positive diagnosis came at some point on Thursday. There's a bit of ambiguity as to whether uh, there were multiple tests taken before it was confirmed that the president actually had tested positive. They may have uh, waited for a secondary or tertiary test to confirm that to the public because some of the rapid testing kits that the White House uses do, do have a history of false positives. Needless to say, given the incubation period and the sort of timeline here, it suggests that the president may have been infected uh, perhaps last weekend. And there's a lot of focus now around an event that took place at the White House last Saturday. That was where the president announced his judicial nominee for the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, there were several hundred people at the White House in the Rose Garden sitting shoulder to shoulder without masks 
for that event. Uh, and then part of that event actually moved indoors. And again, people were maskless. They were not maintaining any sort of social distance. And we've now seen a whole bunch of people who are at that event start to test positive here in subsequent days. There's Hope Hicks, the president's close personal advisor, for example, a number of Republican senators who are at that event. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, who was uh, in later days sitting in a close room without masks around the president, he's now in hospital with COVID-19. And this continues to trickle uh, out further and further and further. So there's this sort of massive contact tracing effort underway around all those who are in the president's or orbit, not only on Saturday at that event, perhaps during the presidential debate on Tuesday, perhaps at a private fundraiser that the president held in New Jersey on Thursday. Mercedes, this goes far and potentially quite wide. We just have a few moments left, Jackson, but what is the effect of this now? We're in the middle of a presidential campaign. What happens if one of the candidates becomes too sick to campaign? In short, obviously the president is off the trail. Whether or not he returns is an open question. Joe Biden proceeding with a relatively normal campaign schedule for now. But yeah, when you've got a 74-year-old campaigning against a 78-year-old, this is a natural question. Remember, people are already voting. Millions have already cast ballots by mail or in, uh, in person at early voting locations. The bottom line is if one or both of the candidates is unable to fulfill their duties as a candidate, uh, there is that period between November 3rd and the inauguration in January. And the Electoral College, the electors, actually meet in December to certify who the candidates are for each state. Conceivably, if one or both candidates is unable to proceed, uh, either party would put forward a new candidate and the College of Electors would actually decide who that new candidate is as a replacement. Uh, believe it or not, it has happened historically with a vice presidential candidate. We've never been in this hypothetical situation with a presidential candidate before, though. Certainly unprecedented news as much of 2020 seems to be. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Jackson. We'll certainly keep an eye on that story. Thank you. Joining me now to talk about the federal government's response to COVID-19 and the second wave is Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, Carla Qualtro. Thanks so much for coming on, Minister. We just heard from Premier Ford there. We also heard from the Prime Minister on Friday. He said to Canadians, quote, don't go out unless you have to. I think that's giving a lot of folks flashbacks to March and April. Yeah. I know you're very plugged in at the cabinet table. Can you share with us what the government is anticipating this fall when it comes to both the health and economic parts of this second wave of the pandemic? Well, really important questions and really important direction from both the Premier and the Prime Minister. We are right back at the place where we desperately need Canadians to dig in, um, do what we do best, work together to once again tackle um, this rising wave of COVID-19. You know, um, it's totally up to us. And what we expect to happen this fall is, you know, as people start going indoors, as the flu season also descends upon us, we have to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to continue to address, you know, through the things that we all do, whether it's hand washing or social distancing or wearing masks and, and just staying put as much as we can. The more we can do those things, the less economic uh, consequences there'll be, because the more we can deal with community spread, you know, individually and by through our families, the less likely we'll have to be to shut down the, the country again. Do you think that that shutdown is inevitable? I mean, a lot of folks criticized the last one and said we need to be more strategic this time. Lock down the, the long-term care homes first. Don't lock down the places of business. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's far from inevitable. I really think it's in the hands of Canadians right now. And I think that we've learned a lot from how we approached the first wave. And we've got an opportunity here to be more targeted, to be more strategic in how we respond. Um, you'll, you'll see provinces trying different uh, uh, tactics, whether, you know, shutting down a specific type of business versus all businesses, uh, changing the hours of businesses. It, you know, we're really trying uh, amongst governments to minimize the economic impact going forward, but it really depends on people, you know, keep remaining vigilant. Um, we're not messing around here. Bill C-4 uh, introduced, of course, it's, it's your bill. It's looking at uh, what exactly Canadians are going to get for supports, big changes to employment insurance, benefits as well for people who are sick or having to stay home. Whenever a government puts together a bill like this, you take into account certain expectations, uh, how many yep. Canadians you think will need this. What are you projecting in terms of the number of Canadians who will likely need that employment insurance support going forward? Really good question. So as you know, at the height of CERB, we had about 9 million Canadians. We've had about 9 million Canadians access it. At the height, I think we were about 7.5 million at one time. Um, but we know that it's possible that for a full economic shutdown that we could get there. Um, we're not expecting to get there. As I said, we think that we um, can more tactically approach uh, the economic impact of this, this go-round, go but we need to be ready, um, and we needed our benefit system to be ready to pivot at any time to the reality of a lot of people being back off of work. So, you know, the EI system is ready. People have already been transitioning into EI. The new benefits will be available as of tomorrow. Of uh, The sickness and caregiver benefits, people can apply for them. But we wanted a year-long system of benefits, EI and the recovery benefits, to give a little bit of certainty and some crazily uncertain times. One of the things that a lot of businesses would like to see is rent relief, more support for small businesses. Many of them are hanging on by the skin of their teeth. If they have to face uh, more of a second wave, it could be the end for them. I know your government has said you're going to do something about this, but why not already have it ready? Why not have the specifics when this second wave was something that the health authorities and scientists have been predicting for months? Really good question and a fair question. You know, we have worked with provinces and territories on the first iteration of the commercial rent program. We didn't see the uptake. It didn't prove to be the the support we had we had intended it to be for Canadian businesses. The new finance minister has said that she's working hard with her provincial and territorial colleagues to figure out a, a better way forward for businesses that that will encourage uptake, will actually um, make it you know in the best interest of businesses to apply for this. Um, she has said last week that details are soon to come on what the next iteration of rent relief will look like, and I would defer to her for those specifics in the very, very near future. There was a gap between when CERB ended and when the new EI benefits that you've designed will come through. Uh, some folks really concerned about how they're going to pay their bills. The opposition says the Liberals prorogued Parliament. That's put these people in a difficult situation. What do you say to those Canadians? Well, I guess I'd clarify that there was actually no gap between when the CERB ended and when eligibility for these benefits uh, began. So the CERB ended on the 26th, and the, the, these new benefits started on the 27th of September. What's different about these benefits is that they're two-week periods instead of four-week periods, and they're given, like EI, in arrears. So you apply for the two weeks you've just experienced. You don't apply for the four weeks to come. Um, part of that is to deal with some of the concerns we had around um, making the benefits more nimble and, and incentivizing people going to work if they could. Um, but it'll feel like a gap because 
because you've got this two weeks and then a couple more days to get your payment, but effectively you will be paid for every single day and there's no gap. Is your government considering sectoral supports to support certain industries? Uh, I'm thinking in particular here, tourism. I'm thinking about airlines. A lot of airports are saying they're almost redlining and oil and gas out west in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan to try to keep people employed instead of ending up on EI under your portfolio if their employers go under. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's exactly what we want to avoid, right? One of the things we've tried very hard is to keep people attached to the labor force keep, and keep businesses afloat. Um, so absolutely, one of the things you'll hear from the finance minister and other ministers in the uh, in the weeks and months to come is how we're going to um, more targetly, I don't know if that's a word, support different sectors. Again, we don't know what's going to happen economically with these sectors, but we know um, it's going to take a long time for many of them to recover uh, if, if they do to the point where we were pre-COVID, and we need to be there for them. We've spent a lot of time on our pan-Canadian approach, supporting every worker, supporting every family, um, supporting every business with a lot of really important targeted measures, but we need now to strategically invest in specific sectors of the economy that are particularly hard hit. President Donald Trump and the First Lady tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, we certainly have had political leaders up here in Canada as well. Mind you, not in the middle of an election campaign and not with mm. the kind of volatility that we're seeing around U.S. politics right now. Are you concerned about what's happening in the United States? And do you think that the Trump administration is taking COVID-19 seriously? Really important um, conversation, Mercedes. But first of all, of course, I just was really, it, it's just sad to hear that somebody else and their family is impacted by COVID. Um, and it makes people, you know, really be reminded of the the seriousness of this 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 crisis of this this virus, you know, that the president of the United States and his wife aren't immune to it, um, should tell people, you know, wear your, wear your mask, wash your hands, social distance. This thing is serious. Um, it's, it's a shame it's happened during the election. You know, we always like to see um, democracy flourish and have their debates. I, I actually don't know what's going to happen in terms of how um, the next two weeks are going to roll out for uh, him and his family in the election. I wish them all the best and a speedy recovery. And uh, I think we're all watching very closely what's happening in the United States. Minister Qualtro, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. Take care, Mercedes. Here to talk about the politics around COVID-19, the government's response, and the official opposition from her riding is Conservative Deputy Leader Candace Bergen. Thank you for joining us, Ms. Bergen. You know, your leader, Aaron O'Toole, suffered from COVID-19 uh, himself. Uh, so did his wife, Rebecca. That meant you had to step up in a big way to lead your party. Did that experience change your view in any way on COVID-19 and the risks that it poses? Well, you know, we were we're obviously obviously really happy that uh, that our leader Aaron O'Toole and his wife uh, both are, are doing well. Aaron's been able to return to the House of Commons, um, but I think it just really makes it real for everyone that uh, this virus is is serious. It's uh, hitting people regardless of who you are, where you live, what your job is. So we all have to be very serious about how we deal with it and how we protect ourselves and those that we love. Your government has said that. Pardon me. Your party has said that you will not uh, support the... Let me try that one more time. Your party has said that you will not be supporting the government's speech from the throne, but you did support the legislation introducing new employment insurance benefits for Canadians, among other things. Why did you end up voting in favour of that bill after your party had been so critical on it? 
Well, listen, we were very clear, and we have been from the onset of COVID, that we would not get in the way of Canadians getting the support that they need. But it really is troubling to see how Trudeau continually holds back Parliament, shuts down Parliament, and then is forced to, because of his own actions, to ram through legislation that is spending billions of dollars with virtually no oversight. And uh, it really goes to uh, what has been a habit of, uh, of Trudeau, and that is disrespecting democracy and Parliament. And I, I, I think we're seeing him using this pandemic to his own political advantage. But at the end of the day, Conservatives want to help Canadians. We want to see everyday Canadians helped. And so we wanted to, uh, to ensure that this got passed and Canadians got the support that they needed. Well, and at the end of the day, he had the support of the NDP to do this, which is what he really needed. How closely has your party been working with the government to determine supports that Canadians may need going forward as we find ourselves in this second wave? Well, it's been very frustrating. They have not been listening to us from the onset, even early in January when we were asking about the border closures, uh, when we were asking questions of them, we were dismissed. Then very early on when the pandemic hit, uh, they tried to again ram through legislation that would give them power. And so we really, really wanted to work with them because we knew during an emergency, that's what Canadians expected. We did give them suggestions, some of the suggestions they took, much of it they took uh, too late. And so we, we continue even now when it comes to asking for rapid, safe at-home testing. We've been pushing for this for the last week and a half. We're seeing them making some announcements, but we're really concerned with the follow-through. Their track record on follow-through and delivery is, is not good. When you mention the border, of course, the, the really big border that comes to mind for a lot of Canadians is the border with the United States. How long do you think that that border should remain closed? Well, we have to make sure that Canadians are safe. Uh, but I think where the problem is, is when we see some well-connected Americans being able to come across the border and get exemptions. And then we see people who have loved ones uh, here who aren't be, being able to be with their loved ones. Those people are having to, uh, to stay back. So I, I think we want to ensure that Canadians are protected. But we also think that you shouldn't be able to come across just if you know someone uh, in a high place or if you're well-connected. It's, it's about principled policy. Um, some of it is just common sense, which the Liberals uh, sometimes lack. But there is a way to protect Canadians when it comes to the, keeping the border closed, while at the same time ensuring that loved ones can be together and, uh, and that people who are in sometimes very dire situations, people are, are, are dying and they're not able to be with their loved ones. And there are ways to do it in a safe way. If you were in power right now, what would your government be doing differently? I mean, it's always easier to sit back and criticize. This is a government going through a pandemic, and it's an extremely challenging time, a lot of spending. We are seeing that in different governments around the world. So what would the Conservatives do differently right now? Well, I think the one thing you, you can say about Conservatives is we've been offering solutions and, and trying to get the government to listen to our ideas well ahead of the times that they actually have. So first of all, Conservatives would be giving Canadians uh, an ethical government, a professional government, a government that isn't just going to make huge grand promises with uh, no way of delivering. And that's what we've seen the Liberals do. So we would have um, probably gotten earlier on in, in terms of getting some rapid tests for Canadians at home. Um, we would be supporting small businesses. You know, we've been very concerned with the government's uh, but, approach but to supporting be, Canadians. But how would you be doing that you exactly? You, I mean, how, how would you have gotten those tests earlier? How would you be supporting small businesses differently? I, I know there are ideas that your party's talked about, but how would you have executed those ideas? 
very, very simply, the government was only going to give a 10% wage subsidy to small businesses. We told them they needed to increase that to 75%. We also said you should be primarily supporting small businesses. That's what we would have done. Conservatives uh, very much support small businesses. So you would have seen a conservative government primarily supporting small businesses so that those businesses could stay open, so that people could have jobs, while at the same time supporting people when they couldn't go to work because of COVID. So that's on the on the on the job side of things on the healthcare side of things uh, you would have seen us uh, working together with our allies you would have seen a health minister a conservative health minister who uh, was making decisions uh, that that were timely and that were accurate and we've seen this health minister for example make so many mistakes so many made so many bad judgments and trust is really lost a lot of Canadians really don't trust the liberals so you would have had a conservative government that is ethical, that is professional and compassionate. And those are three things that we haven't seen with the current government. Do you think that there's any room for mistakes, though? I mean, when this is a government dealing with something unforeseen, it is very challenging. Yes, absolutely. But Mercedes, we're nine months in. Yeah, this this didn't this didn't just start two two weeks ago or two months ago. We're nine months in, and and for example, on the rapid testing, Trudeau said in March that it was a priority for him to get rapid at-home safe testing for Canadians. Nine months later, we're no further ahead. So definitely, I, I and I I think that's why we were so willing to work with the government and continue to. I mean, as you said. We did vote for and, and we saw this legislation pass that would get Canadian support. But at some point, the government has got to be presenting a plan, be proactive and presenting a plan to Canadians that shows that, that they've thought this through and that they're not just constantly reacting, but they're being proactive, whether it comes to jobs, whether it comes to the health of Canadians, or, 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 or frankly, when it comes to the finances of this country, when you look at the massive deficit, the massive spending, no accountability, at some point, this government has to stop just reacting and be proactive and actually lead, and they haven't done that. Do you think it's fair to completely blame the federal government, given a lot of the testing and health care and lineups come down to the provinces? That's provincial jurisdiction. Well, the provinces have asked the government. The government is the one, Health Canada is the one that reviews these tests. And we do have a health minister. We have a, a federal health minister. And so that definitely is the role of the federal health minister and the federal health department to, uh, to help the provinces to be able to have access to these, uh, these various tests. So that's their job. They can't continually pass the buck to the provinces. They need to do their job. One last question. In the presidential debate down south uh, last week, we heard President Trump refuse to condemn white supremacists as well as right-wing extremism. Uh, that's certainly a topic a lot of folks have been talking about up here in Canada. Are you concerned about right-wing extremism or white supremacist activity in Canada? Any any extremism, absolutely. Uh, white extremism, uh, uh, any kind of extremism is concerning. And I think that's why it's so important that we, whether it's the current government um, or our conservative government in waiting, believe very firmly in we need to be uniting Canadians, not dividing them, not using wedge politics or pitting one group against the other. 
Absolutely, we condemn, uh, I think all Canadians condemn, the majority of Canadians condemn white supremacy or extremism of any kind. We are an inclusive country, we are a caring country, and uh, it's important that politicians, and I have to say including the Liberals, and especially when we've seen some of the things the Liberals have done, need to be building a country that does not divide but that unites Canadians, and that's what Conservatives will do under Aaron O'Toole. Deputy Conservative Leader Candace Bergen joining us from her riding today. Thank you so much for your time, Ms. Bergen. Thanks for having me. The Green Party of Canada has elected a brand new leader today, Anna Mee Paul. She made history yesterday as the first black woman elected to lead a major federal political party. And she joins me now. Welcome to the show, Anna Mee, and congratulations on your win. Thank you so much. It's just a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, Ms. Paul, your win, a historic win. Where do you think the Green Party needs to go to be able to win a substantial number of seats in Canada? Uh, my job is to help us connect with people in Canada because we have been heading in the right direction for a very long time uh, and it's just time to, to make that link uh, with people in Canada uh, in terms of uh, who they're choosing to vote for. We are the party that has been talking about the, the policies that had they been in place when the pandemic hit would have made all the difference in the world and so I'm thinking of universal pharmacare, I'm thinking of our demands for reform in long-term care, I'm thinking of guaranteed livable income. And so, you know, we, we, we're on the right track. It's just a question of uh, bringing more Canadians along with us. Ms. Paul, what do you think needs to happen with the Green Party to become, I guess, more of a mainstream choice for Canadians? There was a lot of predictions ahead of the last election that the Greens were going to take a number of seats. That failed to materialize. What will you do differently than the last leader, Ms. May? Well, we know from the polls that were taken just after the election that more than a third of people in Canada chose to vote strategically. Uh, we also know that more than a third of people in Canada have said that they would consider voting green and we are most often the second choice of most people in Canada who vote. And so we need to be giving people in Canada more reasons to vote for something as opposed to against something. Uh, I believe that, uh, that this moment that we're living through, this, uh, the urgency of the pandemic and the urgency of the climate crisis are really issues that Canadians are starting uh, to um, to say to themselves, we, we don't want to go back, and if we don't want to go back, we know we need something different. And I, my suggestion to them is to take a very strong good look at the Green Party and the policies that we've been talking about. Green parties all around the world make their breakthroughs at moments like this when people are just ready for something different, something better. You are already signed up to run in a by-election. Of course, as the leader, you eventually want to have a seat in the House of Commons. You're going to be running in Bill Morneau's old riding. Um, do you think you have a chance of winning there? Because you didn't take a, a large percentage of the vote last time, although, of course, you were not the leader of the Green Party at that point. Well, that's true, and I'm hoping that that is an advantage. You know, One of the things uh, that the Liberals always did was to bring in the star candidate that normally went into cabinet. And of course, that's very, can be very attractive uh, for residents, even though it didn't produce any of the outcomes that people in Toronto Centre uh, deserved and should have expected, given how senior their, uh, their MPs uh, representation has been. 
Uh, so in my case, I'm running for the same reasons that I ran less than a year ago in Toronto Centre, which is to make sure that people in Toronto Centre have the option of real representation. You know, and I do believe again that we are, we're not where we were before. We're not where we were six months ago. We are in the midst of a pandemic that has hit Toronto Centre particularly hard. And people there, I believe, will be looking for the representation that is actually going to bring the urgent help that they need. And so, yes, I'm, I'm going to be running to win in that seat. Your win is a historic win, and there's a lot of discussion right now in Canada about anti-Black racism, about the need to have more diversity, more voices in politics. What would you like to see happening in Canadian politics to be more inclusive and to reach out so that we have a political system that actually represents Canadians? Well, there's no shortage, and we are so fortunate in Canada um, that we have been able to attract uh, the best talent, uh, the best minds from all over the world. We have, we, we're one of the most successful countries in doing that. And so it's even more of a reason that it's a shame when that uh, diversity is not represented in our public policy. We know that the best ideas can come from everywhere and, uh, and anywhere. And so if we're cutting ourselves off from that diversity, then we're just losing out uh, in terms of the kind of policy that we're, we're developing. And so I'm just encouraging every single person in Canada to be the eyes and ears for talent in their community. There are many outstanding people from underrepresented groups that just don't see themselves reflected in politics, and so they don't consider it. And so tell them, tell them when you see that talent, we're interested, we think that you should run. And when you do, we're going to support you and we're going to vote for you. And there's no question that electing someone like me, the Greens choosing, uh, our members choosing someone like me, already that's a very powerful symbol for people who had not seen themselves reflected. And I'm very proud of that. Ms. Paul, and you, I are, thank her members. <laughs> you are only the second Jewish person to lead a, a major federal political party in Canada. I know you experienced anti-Semitism on the campaign trail. Are you concerned about anti-Semitism in the Green Party? I'm concerned about anti-Semitism in general. Uh, there's still definitely some work to do. There's, there's no question that, uh, that the race was an eye-opener. Uh, I can't attribute, I can't attribute uh, all of the comments at all to our membership. I know that every single political party uh, has, uh, has work to do in making sure that they're truly inclusive, making sure that, uh, that the voices within their party are people, the voices of people that absolutely uh, adhere to their values. And so there is no place in the Green Party of Canada for anti-Semitism, and there never will be. Um, and I, I would say that I hope that all of the political parties uh, feel that way. And I will also encourage every single person in Canada, whether it's anti-Semitism or anti-Black racism or anti-Indigenous racism, when they see it, speak out. Because silence emboldens the hate, and that's what we need to make sure we stamp out. Ms. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Hope to come back soon. And with that, we're out of time for the West Block podcast for this week, but we will be back next week with all the news of, no doubt, another very busy week.